0: Take your Bibles now, and if you'll open them, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to continue our study in this 13th chapter today. And uh, we're studying about love, and I believe that one of the hardest words in the English language to define is love. Many poets have written about love. Many songwriters have written about love, and in fact, the title of my message is from the song title of a 1955 movie, Love is a Many-Splendored Thing. I'm not going to sing that for you today, that's just the title of the message. But we really do struggle to define love because we believe the concept of love is so big that it simply defies simple explanations. Well, if we have so much trouble trying to describe human love and uh, which usually, most of the time, is simply reduced to romantic feelings, how much harder do you think that it is to define God's love? Well, certainly it is very difficult. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we find the Bible's most extensive definition of love. As we've already uh, spoken about this, love is not romantic feelings, this is not brotherly love that we're speaking of here, it's not patriotic love like we would have for our country and especially at this time of the year, and we're thinking about July 4th coming up, but this is really a new definition of love and it's like anything that can be known unless this love is specially revealed by God. And I even have to step, take that one step further because no one really understands this love unless he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And I don't just mean somebody who acknowledges Christ's existence, but I mean a person who has entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you know that He is your Savior and you are confident that you're His child. And then, even after you become a Christian, there are very few Christians that really reach a depth of understanding of the love that Paul speaks in this chapter. Now, in this 13th chapter, the Apostle Paul takes love, and like a diamond in his hands, he sort of turns it all around so that we can see the many facets of love. Like a perfectly cut diamond, he takes love from every angle, and every angle of God's love is equally exquisitely beautiful. There are 14 statements that Paul makes about love in this passage. And rather than just being the characteristics of love, this is really love or a, a picture of love in action. You see, what you can't do is you can't put this love up on a shelf somewhere and admire it because this love is not real unless it's working. This is a working love. It has to be demonstrating. And so you can't be called a Christian who truly loves unless you are actively involved in love's demonstration. Now, last week we talked about eight of these facets or these characteristics of love. Today, we're going to talk about the last six that Paul mentions here. And again, my subject today is love is a many-splendored thing. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to start at verse number 1. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity... And again, that means love. I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, verse number four, Paul starts to give us these characteristics. Charity suffereth long. Love, he means suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity fawneth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. Uh, this passage is open before us again. There are so many different aspects of love that you want displayed in your people that really reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And I just ask you, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to a better understanding of this and that we might be people who love as you love. Blessing the message today, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to allow me to set the stage once again as we go into Paul's discussion of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All of us know by now that 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by Paul to this Corinthian church to address many different problems this church had. There are three core issues around which all of their problems were centered, and that is immorality, immaturity, and immortality. We've already discussed immorality, and the section that we're in right now deals with the immaturity of these Corinthian Christians. In every church, God has gifted members of the church with special spiritual gifts. Not all of us have the same gifts, and there are some people in the church who have more than one gift, but whatever the gift that God has given you, God has given you that gift for the edification of the church and also for the glory of God. And you're supposed to use that gift, not for selfish purposes, but you're to use that for the good of the entire church. And you exercise your gift in humility, understanding very clearly that you would have no spiritual gifts at all unless those things were given by God. You are simply an instrument in the hands of God to do His work. Well, in this Corinthian church, the people had taken their spiritual gifts and they'd misused them. Spiritual gifts are supernatural, and so the tendency of an immature Christian is to take that gift and to use it for himself, to build up himself, to, to make him look like somebody, uh, to, for self-aggrandizement, uh, for conceit. And Paul is warning the people about this and telling them that they ought not to be selfish with their spiritual gifts. And we've learned that selfishness is actually the opposite of love. And remember last week we discussed that the opposite of love is not hate. In a biblical sense, and in the love that Paul is talking about here, the opposite of love is selfishness. Now let me give you that definition of love once more. Love is the sacrificial, joyful desire to put your welfare above mine. And so when I decide that I'm going to put my welfare above yours, then I have become selfish, and that is the opposite of love, as Paul speaks in this passage. Well, Paul comes along in the middle of this discussion about spiritual gifts, and he gives us sort of a a primer on love. Now, we don't have time to go into those other eight facets of love that I spoke about last week, but let me just mention these to you one more time. Let's get the first eight that we discussed last week. Number one is that love is patient with people. Number two, love is kind and considerate. Number three, love is not jealous and envious. Four, love is not boastful and conceited. Five, love is not rude and crude. Love is not selfish and demeaning. Seven, love is not angry and bitter. Number eight, love is not calculating and vengeful. You'll find those characteristics in verses four and five. Today, we're going to move on into verses six and seven, and we're going to look at these last six aspects or, or facets of this beautiful diamond of love as Paul describes them here. Now, the first one that I'd like to point out to you, beginning in verse number 6, is that love abhors sin. In verse 6, it says, Love rejoices not in iniquity. Now, the best way that I could describe it is that love takes no pleasure in any activity that impugns the character of God. Now, God is perfectly righteous. All unrighteousness is sin. And so, therefore, by definition, whatever is sin, that must be abhorrent to God. And I suppose probably one of the most misunderstood concepts among Christians today is that as a Christian, to be called a Christian, you must, above all, be a tolerant person. I mean, if somebody is different from you, and if that difference is a, even a totally immoral, perverse lifestyle, that to be a Christian, you have to accept that lifestyle, and you have to adopt the philosophy of live and let live. And so, if you see someone who's committing sin, who who is not moral and decent, and you believe in the traits of moral indecency, you're not supposed to say anything to that person. You're not supposed to bring that out. And never in, in any of your thoughts and your attitudes are you to show any kind of judgment towards another person because of their immorality. Well, of course, we all know the Bible teaches that we cannot be the judges of another person's salvation. We can't look into a person's heart. We can't tell what's deep down in their heart. But the Bible certainly does give us a criteria for judgment. And even here in this letter of 1 Corinthians, this is a form of judgment against this Corinthian church that Paul found so much immorality. And definitely, here are people that are living in a perverse lifestyle. Tolerance is not a Christian virtue, and it's not a characteristic of love. Love is... Can only be pure when it comes in compliance with God's Word. So don't think that you're displaying a Christian attitude when you're tolerant towards sin and that you let people go on sinning as they please because the Bible teaches us that sin is against God and God does not tolerate sin. And so a person who loves other people will not let another person die in their sin without telling them the consequences of their sin. The consequences of sin is death in the devil's hell. So don't think that what you can do as a Christian is just stick a flower behind your ear and live in peace, love, and harmony with all creatures, and at the same time just enjoy the immorality and call yourself a loving Christian. That won't work. It can't work. Because God's love never tolerates sin. Now, let me say this also, that there are many Christians that actually come to the place that they are selfish, and they begin to delight in sin rather than to abhor it. I mean, there are Christians who love to hear bad news. They like to hear that somebody's not doing quite as well as they are. Now, you get into the sin of gossip, and that's one of the things that gossip does. It just loves to spread bad news, And Christians who listen to gossip are people who love to hear bad news. And so that's what gossip is. It's when you gloat over the shortcomings of other Christians. Now, do you know that all gossip is not untrue? I mean, some gossip is rumor and innuendo, but all uh, gossip is not untrue. But whenever you decide that you're going to tell the naked truth about somebody, if you're in a gossip setting that sometimes can be harmful. And so whenever you say anything about anybody, even if it's the truth, you need to step back and you need to consider what is the motive behind what I'm saying. And if you're saying this at a time that it's not going to help that person, even if it's the truth, then the best thing for you to do is to keep quiet. Someone has said, nothing makes a long story short like the arrival of the person that you're talking about. You see, true love is never going to have fun with sin. It takes no pleasure in any activity that's not consistent with the character of God. Now, the second thing that Paul shows us here is that love desires truth. Verse number 6 says, Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. The last five characteristics that, that Paul gives us here are in the positive. Now, Paul had described some of these aspects of love in the negative where he says love is not this or love is not that. But here he turns it around to the positive side and he says love rejoices in truth. Well, what kind of truth do you suppose that Paul's talking about? sun is shining today. It looks like it is anyway. That's the truth. I'm very handsome. That's the truth. <laughs> Barack Obama is the Antichrist. That may or may not be the truth. I don't know. But I believe here what Paul is talking about is God's truth. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells the Christian soldier to put on the sword of the Spirit. He says that is the Word of God. It might seem odd for me to say that Christian warfare is consistent with Christian love, but in the mind of Paul, those things are, are, are very consistent. How do I know that? I know that because God is never going to teach one righteous principle and negate that with another. And so if God is anything, he's consistent. And when Paul says love rejoices in truth, he means that love will not tolerate anything that's against the revealed word of God. All righteousness comes from the truth of the word, and a loving, righteous God is never going to tolerate any falsehood. You know, one of the things that I have to do as Baptist, in Bram Baptist Church, I, I do my very best to try to teach you the truth. And sometimes when I teach you the truth, I have to tell you things that are wrong or things that are a lie in order that you might be able to see the truth and for the truth to shine. And so what that involves sometimes is I have to mention the practices or the doctrines of other different groups who who don't believe what I think the Bible teaches, and what we as the Berean Baptist Church believe that the Bible teaches. And so I I have an obligation to expose what's wrong, and to teach what's right, and teach whatever is substantiated by God's Word. Now, in Paul's mind, that is perfectly consistent to expose a false teacher, and at the same time teach sound doctrine. That's part of what I'm called on to do. Now, isn't Paul speaking in love in, in this very same book in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where he's talking about a person who was involved in immorality and he said, you need to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So he was saying, there's somebody who has a wrong practice in the church. of are doing the wrong thing and we have to point out that sin and correct it before it permeates the entire church. The apostle John, who is the apostle of love and, and wrote more in the Bible about love than any other person, said this in 2 John 1 or 2 John verse 10. He said, If there come anyone to you and bring not this doctrine, he said, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. And so he means that if someone comes to you and brings to you a doctrine or a practice that is not consistent with the Word of God, he says, Don't even let him inside of your house. And when they leave, you don't say, well, God bless you, and God loves everybody. No, you don't. Now, is that consistent with the kind of love that he's talking of? Well, according to Scripture, that's one of the multiple facets of love, and that is love rejoices in the truth. And so whenever you encourage a person, a false teacher, in a lie, then all that you do is you teach them to lie to other people. So it is not inconsistent with love, the principles of love in the Bible, to expose false doctrine and those who teach it. You see, I love you enough that I want to tell you the truth. I don't want you to die and go to hell. And and I'm not going to tell you a lie. I'm not going to preach an untruth because that's not going to help you or help anyone else. And so we expose those who teach false doctrine. Compromising the truth does not help a false teacher and it won't help you. Now the third thing though because we're going to tie this together a little bit love protects from harm. The beginning of verse number 7 says love beareth all things. Now let's don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that love disregards sin and love says, well whatever you've done that's okay with me. I can live with anything that you do. That's fine. We've already discovered that. That that's not what he's speaking of. But at the same time, we do need to understand that it's not love's business to discover and to expose the faults of others. Now, let's go back to the thing of gossip again. That's exactly what gossip does. Gossip loves to dig up all the dirt on you and make sure that everybody knows what's wrong with you. That's what gossip does. It loves to expose. One of my pet peeves, and sometimes we're eating dinner in the evening, And uh, just before dinner, my my wife likes to watch Judge Judy. Now, I like Judge Judy in a lot of ways. I mean, I like that uh, she insists that the law is the law. And if you're stupid, that doesn't matter. That's no excuse for you to take advantage of somebody. That's not my problem. Judge Judy's not the problem. But sometimes she walks away from the TV, and she doesn't change the channel. And the next program that comes up is a program about celebrity gossip. I really don't care. How many times Britney Spears got drunk at a party last week? I don't care who J-Lo is dating, whether it's Ben or or Kevin or Doug or Snoop Dogg, whatever that is. I I don't care. But, you know, there are a lot of people who do care. There are a lot of people who love that stuff because they just love the dirt. They love to hear about divorce and about infidelity. They love to hear about who's got a drug problem and who got arrested last week. Our society thrives on that kind of junk, and that 's why it's on TV all the time. But Christian love is not interested in exposes. You know, one of the things that you probably learned about me, if you attended Brand for very long, I love to teach from the Old Testament. I mean, I love to go into the Old Testament and, and look at all the types and the figures that we find of Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And many of you, maybe some of you don't know this, but we find some of the greatest pictures of Christ and his work in the Old Testament Scriptures. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, many people think that Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he got the Ten Commandments, and that's all that God said to him. But in fact, there were a lot of other things that Moses received while he was on that mountain. There was lots of information that God gave him, and what was extra to those Ten Commandments that God gave was also a lot of things that had to do with ceremonial laws, how that Israel was supposed to worship God in the right way. And one of the things that Moses received on Mount Sinai was the plans for the building of a place of worship. That place was called the Tabernacle. Now, those of you that are great Bible students, you learned... Uh, something about the tabernacle when you watch Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones went looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody remember that? He went looking for the Ark of the Covenant, and in fact, he found it. But he lost it, and now somewhere it's in that warehouse in Washington, D.C., and nobody knows where it is. The truth of the matter is, of course, that no one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. But, But what was that all about? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was actually a box that was 27 inches wide, 27 inches high, and 45 inches long. It was covered with gold, and on top of this box, there was a lid. And the lid was called the mercy seat. And that lid was put on the box, or on top of the Ark of the Covenant, so that it would cover up the contents that were inside. One of the things that was inside of the Ark of the Covenant was those Ten Commandments inscribed on stone that God gave to Moses. They put those Ten Commandments into the Ark of the Covenant. They put the lid, called the mercy seat, on top of that to cover up the law. Now, that that was a symbolic gesture. And what they were doing was showing that Jesus Christ came into this world and provided a way by which we would not be judged by the law. Jesus was judged by the law himself, and Jesus was found to be perfect. When you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior then your sins are all covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Those sins are never going to be brought up again. They're never going to be mentioned again. God's not going to bring them up any longer, but they stay consistently covered under the blood of Jesus. Now, that is a picture for us, and the picture I want to show you is that God's love gave us Christ to cover our sins, not to expose them. God is forbearing in his love, and he covers up all those sins in Christ. He says you are no longer or you will not stand in judgment because of these sins that you have committed. If you've trusted Christ, he gives you his perfect righteousness so you're not judged by the law. Now that's a picture for us today, that instead of exposing sin and instead of gloating in the sin of other people, Christian love will always forbear sin. Listen to this scripture in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Peter writes, And above all things, have fervent charity. Have fervent love among yourselves, for charity, or love, shall cover a multitude of sins. Did you know that verse is a direct reference right back to the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant and the fact that there was a mercy seat that covered up all the law that was against us? Now, Christian love will cause me... To protect you from harm. And what that means is that that when you've fallen, when something goes wrong in your life, that it's my desire to lovingly restore you and not to despitefully expose you. So I want to warn everybody here today, don't be fault finders. It's not your job to find out what's wrong with everybody. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that before you go look for the faults in other people, get the... For you look at the speck or the splendor, he says, in another person's eye, the thing that you need to do is to remove the log, remove the whole tree out of your own life. And we do remember that Jesus said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Now the fourth thing that Paul shows us here about love is that love believes the best. I really like this one because this is the one that's probably kept me out of more trouble and, and getting in arguments, and, 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 and just holding grudges against people than any other single thing. And it's what Paul says here in the next part of this verse. He says, love believes all things. What that means is that love always looks for the best possible outcome. In our American law, uh, we have something that sort of gives us comfort. Uh, we say in, in our justice system that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. And that works for everything but the IRS and Christians. The IRS says that you're guilty until you're proven innocent. And do you know there are many Christians who think the very same thing? The first thing that they hear and they say, you're guilty about that? You know what's kept me out of a lot of trouble? Keeps me from flying off the handle when people speak to me and they make some kind of an offhanded comment. The thing that keeps me out of trouble is my first reaction when I hear something like that. And my first reaction, I always try to do this, is not to be offended by it, but to think that there must be some other explanation for what they said. This person really didn't mean what they said. Maybe it was an off moment. And in another time, another circumstance, they wouldn't say that. And so if you look at things like this, that that whatever that person said, they didn't really intentionally try to harm me. I promise you, you're going to do a lot better and you're going to be a lot happier. The scripture that always comes to my mind when I think of this in Philippians 2, verse number 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, what that means is, if I'm going to make an error in judgment about you, I'd rather make an error by believing the best about you. I'd rather err on that side than believing the worst about you. You know, poor old Job had that problem. He had all these things that were going on in his life and his friends, so-called friends, quote-unquote friends, came to comfort him and they were just under the impression and came to the conclusion, well, Job, you've sinned. This is what happens to people when they sin. Job, you are nothing but a sinner before God and so God's punishing you. So Job listened to that over and over again and finally said, miserable comforters are you all. Folks, if I love you, As a Christian brother or sister, my first reaction is always to give you the benefit of the doubt. But I see Christians running around fussing and fuming. They get angry over things. And sometimes it's not even what people said. It's the look that they got from somebody. Do you know that? You don't even have to say anything sometimes. It's just the look. And people assume the very worst by that and they they fly into a rage. That is not love. One of the most remarkable things that I've seen in a long time is when I was trying to settle a dispute between two church members. One church member came in to talk to me, and the church member kept saying, you know, oh, how much they love people and how they're just the greatest example of love that you'll ever find in the world. And then they talked about the other person. They're the worst person. Uh, all the things that they do wrong, they are so unchristian. That person left my office And then made a special trip to come back to see me and say, oh, there was something I forgot that I to tell you about that person. You know, I stopped trying to settle that dispute right then because I saw that that person was not interested in reconciliation. They were interested in getting their way. And if I don't get my way, I'm packing my bags and I'm leaving the church and taking everything with me. You know, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And there are a lot of people that are like that. Love does not react that way. Now, don't call yourself a great, loving Christian if you're not willing to believe the best about people who are also born-again believers. Now, that's the first thing that you do then. You start with that. This person is a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to think the best about them until it's proven to me that the worst is true. And then you know what happens when you find out that the worst is true? You just go on and forgive that person like Christ forgives. That's going to keep you out of a lot of trouble. Love always believes the best and acts accordingly. Now, number five, love holds out hope. He says here, love hopeth all things. That means that love is not going to let me write you off. Love means that I understand when you've wandered away from God, when you don't act like you ought to act, and when you cause all kinds of problems... Love causes me to understand that you might get as far away as the prodigal son, but I still believe that God is able to restore you. I hold out hope for you. I've seen church members that walk away from the church. They fall into sin. And sometimes uh, we have to discipline that person. They will not repent of the sin. And so in order to keep the purity of the church, we have to remove that person from our membership. Now... Don't give up hope for people like that because God can bring them back. It's very easy for us to become bitter about church members that leave the church and then they say bad things about the church. They they say bad things about leadership. And it's very easy for us to become bitter and we get uh, this thought in our mind, I hope something bad happens to them. You ought not to think like that. Don't think something you want something bad to happen to them. Rather think, and pray that God will restore them and that they'll come back. And just like the prodigal son came back, you can then have fellowship with them again. And praise God the prodigal's return. And so the love that Paul talks about here is one that never stops hoping. If it's a child that leaves home bitter, it doesn't stop hoping. If it's a spouse that's hurt you and done something wrong, this love doesn't stop hoping, it looks for, for a return and restoration. You see, when I understand this definition of love, love is the sacrificial desire to put your welfare above mine, then I'm never going to lose hope that God will make things right. God may bring you back, and I pray that he does, and if he does, I welcome you with open arms. And that leads me then to this last of the multiple facets of love, and that is number six. Love hangs in at all cost. He says love endureth all things. Several weeks ago, we were studying in Ephesians about Christian warfare, and I related a story that was the inspiration for the song, for the hymn, Hold the Fort. Philip Bliss wrote that song many, many years ago, uh, back before the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, rather. And he wrote these words. He said, Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven by thy grace we will. And that song was actually inspired by an incident that happened in the Civil War. Many of you weren't here on Wednesday night that we talked about that, so I want to read this story to you once again because it's a good illustration about enduring love. Just before William Tecumseh Sherman became his famous or began his famous march to the sea in eighteen sixty four, And while his army lay camped in the neighborhood of Atlanta, Georgia, on the 5th of October, the Army of Hood, in a carefully prepared movement, passed the right flank of Sherman's army, gained his rear, and commenced the destruction of the railroad leading north, burning blockhouses and capturing the small garrisons along the line. Sherman's army was put in rapid motion, pursuing Hood to save the supplies and larger posts, the principal one of which was located at Altoona Pass. General Corse of Illinois was stationed there with about 1,500 men, Colonel Turtelot being second in command. A million and a half rations were stored here, and it was highly important that the earthworks commanding the pass and protecting the supplies be held. 6,000 men under the command of General French were detailed by Hood to take up the position. The works were completely surrounded and summoned to surrender. Corse refused, and a sharp fight commenced. The defenders were slowly driven into a small fort on the crest of the hill. Many had fallen, and the result seemed to render a prolongation of the fight hopeless. At this moment, an officer caught sight of a white signal flag far across the valley, 20 miles distant, upon the top of Kennesaw Mountain. The signal was answered, and soon the message was waved across from mountain to mountain, Hold the fort! I am coming! W.T. Sherman." Cheers went up. Every man was nerved to a full appreciation of the position, and under a murderous fire, which killed or wounded more than half the men in the fort, Corse himself being shot three times through the head, and Tortelot taking command, though himself badly wounded, they held the fort for three hours until the advance guard of Sherman's army came up. French was obliged to retreat. And so Philip Briss wrote in his hymn, Oh, my comrades, see the signal waving in the sky. Reinforcements now appearing. Victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus, signal still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace, we will. Now, the reason I read you that story is because the word endureth in verse number 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually a military word. These Union soldiers that were holding this fort at all cost—that that is exactly the term that Paul is using when he says, love endureth all things. And so it means that whatever's thrown against it, no matter how difficult things become, no matter how impossible the situation may be, this kind of love does not quit. Now, so many times you'll hear husbands and wives talk about falling out of love, and the wife will say, I don't love him anymore. Or the husband says, I don't love her anymore. That's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. If we had this kind of love in our marriages, it could never fall out. You could never fall out when you have this kind of love. And friends, what it's referring to is the very same love that held Jesus on that cross. Though he was beaten without mercy, though his beard was pulled from his face, though a crown of thorns was pierced into his brow, though nails were driven into his hands and his feet, Christ never stopped loving. Christ never gave up. He never came down from the cross, even though they said, if you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. But you know it's this kind of love that Paul is talking about, love that endures all things That caused Christ to stay on that cross, and he would not leave because he loved us. And that's the same kind of love that holds on. It still holds on to us, though so many times we fail him. And though so many times as Christians we don't love one another as we should, yet Christ still loves us. He never falls out of love with us. And so Paul says, Love endureth all things. And he has this in mind, this kind of love in mind. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I never, no never, no never will forsake. So Paul says to the Corinthians, this is the best. This is above all. Gifts are good. The gifts that God gives the church, that's wonderful. Spiritual gifts are great for the church. But this is the very best of all. It's to have this kind of love. What is it? Love is patient with people. Love is kind and considerate. Love is not jealous and envious. Love is not boastful and conceited. Love is not rude and crude. Love is not selfish and demeaning. Love is not angry and bitter. Love is not calculating and vengeful. Love abhors sin. Love protects from harm. Love believes the best. Love holds out hope. Love hangs on, hangs in at all cost. The next time that you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7... Every time that you see the word charity in your King James Bible, try reading it this way. Try substituting Christ everywhere it says charity because every one of these things is a characteristic of Jesus Christ himself. And that is the best for all Christians to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful treatise on love that the Apostle Paul has given. Help us to understand this better. These are all characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to love as he loved, to show that love to one another. Lord, help us to really understand that love is that joyful desire to put everyone's welfare above my own. Let us not be selfish people. And then, Lord, I pray for those here today who may not know you as Savior. If there's someone here today who has not yet trusted you, they'll never understand this love until they put their full confidence and hope all of the trust of their very being in what you did on the cross of Calvary when you died for their sins. Lord, open someone's eyes to the gospel today as we sing this invitation hymn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's please stand.